0: Joyful, joyful, we God. Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast.
1: Our broadcast today is entitled Gog and Magog. Today on Words of Grace, I want to spend our time together focusing on a passage of Scripture that we would be wise to keep in mind found in the book of Revelation chapter 20. This passage is intriguing as well as alarming as it foretells a final colossal battle between good and evil at the end of time, A battle in which good wins, not because of their own strength, but because the Lord himself obtains the victory. Let's read Revelation chapter 20, verses 6 through 9. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years." And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven, and devoured them all. And as you begin reading in verse 10 of Revelation chapter 20, immediately after this, you have the judgment of Satan and all of his angels. There's a great white throne judgment. The dead are judged. Those whose names are not found written in the Lamb's book of life are judged according to their works and cast into the lake of fire. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the elect of God, God's people, are carried a way to be with him in chapter 21 into a place that is called a new heaven and a new earth. Now, having read that, this passage about Gog and Magog being rallied up at the loosing of Satan at the end of time to engage in a battle that compasses the breadth of the earth, a battle in which so many people are fighting, their numbers rival the sand of the sea— Having read that, let me just say up front that this is on my mind and has been for some time due to events happening in the world today, namely the violence and warring happening as we speak in the Middle East between Israel and the Hamas terrorists, those terrorists being supported by the surrounding states. Now, I have to give you one huge disclaimer followed by a couple of other smaller disclaimers as we introduce today's subject material. And these disclaimers would be required because of the subject matter we're considering in light of American Christianity's obsession with making any and every calamity indicative of the end of the world. It's not always the end of the world, and yet we're always seeing trials and tribulations— We live in a world full of wars and rumors of wars, and every time a war happens or there's some new skirmish, it's not the end of time. Every time there has been a world war, it was not the end of time. But we have this tendency, because of the prevalence of dispensationalism as a common teaching among Christians, to react to each one of these major events as if it is the end. Christians in World War II certainly wondered if it was drawing nigh to the end of time for good reason, but the end was not yet, and the same is the case with World War I and with many other wars that have occurred in Christian history. So I have to give you these disclaimers, especially this first one. Disclaimer number one, while I'm talking to you today about Gog and Magog, I am not saying that what we just read and what we are about to study in Revelation 20 is happening today. I am not saying this is what's taking place in the world right now. However, what I read with you is going to happen one day. This is inspired Scripture, and so it is relevant to our lives. It is also prophetic, so it is given to inform us and to warn us about the climate of the world at the second coming of Christ, and we would be wise to know it and to be, in some sense, prepared for it. Disclaimer number two. There are two extremes that people take about Bible prophecy. One is extreme futurism, and the other is extreme preterism. What do these terms mean? Extreme futurism attempts to make many prophecies in the Bible applied to events yet to come, despite having already been fulfilled. What are some examples of extreme futurism? Well, applying passages from the Olivet Discourse that deal with the destruction of the Temple and the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70, applying those passages to the end of time— is one example of extreme futurism. We recently conducted a radio program on the Olivet Discourse. It's in the archives, the radio archives at flintriverpbc.org. I would encourage you to go and to listen to that message if you missed it or if you'd like to be refreshed on the subject. But in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus answers three questions. The first is about the destruction of Jerusalem, when every stone of that temple would be cast down. The other two questions had to do with the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. Jesus is asked three questions, Jesus answers three questions. To make the passages from the Olivet Discourse apply to the end of time make very little sense whatsoever. Jesus talks about how the church would see armies come past the holy city and they would need to flee into the wilderness. Now, that's going to happen, the holy city being compassed in the book of Revelation chapter 20, but rather than fleeing into the wilderness, the Lord is going to end that battle as the city is compassed. So, there are differences between the scenario in Revelation 20 and the scenario in the Olivet Discourse. Revelation 20 describes a battle that happens before the end, and yet the Olivet Discourse describes a battle a trouble, a problem that was greater than Israel had ever faced and would be greater than Israel would ever face, a time that was brought to an end for the elect's sake. Except those days should be shortened, except for the elect's sake. Jesus would say in the Olivet Discourse those days were shortened. Jesus would say that some people will be taken and some people will be left in the Olivet Discourse that had reference to judgment because he compares it to Noah's day. He would say, I feel sorry for you women that are with child as you flee the holy city in that day. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense as it relates to the end of time and the resurrection. Woe unto you that are nursing children in that day, Jesus would say, warning Christians before the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus would even say, when you see armies come past the holy city, know that the desolation, that is to say, of the temple, is nigh. The abomination of desolation that happened in the intertestamental period, what happened once again, that original abomination of desolation being when Antiochus ransacked the temple, slaughtered a boar on the altar to God, and set up an image to a false god within the temple of God. That's the abomination that makes desolate. Other examples of extreme futurism would be to apply the 70 weeks of Daniel to the end of time, or to put a gap in the middle of that prior to the last week, the 70 weeks for a timetable to Christ, and then on through to the destruction of the temple. The people of the prince came, and they destroyed the holy city and the temple, as the 70 weeks of Daniel predict. To apply all of that to the future would be great error, and yet that's common in American Christendom today. And again, those are examples of extreme futurism. The other extreme we need to avoid is preterism, the idea that every prophecy of the Bible is fulfilled. Now, there are many, many hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that have been fulfilled, but there are some yet to be fulfilled. God didn't leave us without a guide or a roadmap through human history. There are other prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. The most extreme preterists even deny the resurrection coming at the last day. But those teetering on that view who believe in the resurrection but are extreme preterists sometimes have difficulty even producing a text that supports the resurrection because they apply every passage describing the end of the world to the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. So there are two extremes that we need to avoid. We need to avoid extreme futurism where we look at the Bible as a science fiction television series, and we need to avoid preterism that places all prophecy as being fulfilled in the past. What we need to do is rightly divide the word of truth. We need to rightly apply the word of God. And one good rule of thumb to know what has been fulfilled and what has not been fulfilled is to look in the New Testament and see if there are citations of something as being fulfilled. If it has been fulfilled according to an apostle or a Bible writer, then you don't have to wonder, is that yet coming one day? A great example of that is Joel's prophecy of the sun being black as sackcloth and the moon being red as blood, people having visions and dreaming dreams. Peter said that was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, so we don't have to wonder about that one, but that's a passage that many people point to a future application of as well. So we want to avoid these two extremes, extreme futurism and extreme preterism, trying to rightly apply prophecies the way that God intended them. Disclaimer number three, we may very well be living through the last days, but we have to remember that smaller events representative to the chaos of the final hours of human history have always flared up and will always flare up and there's an important reason for this. That reason is that the mystery of iniquity already yet works. What do I mean by that? What a strange statement that might be to your ears. The mystery of iniquity already works. Addressing these issues in 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul said that there were forces at work, dark forces, which he called the mystery of iniquity— which are always seeking this sort of Gog and Magog violence in the world and warfare against the Lord and His people. But those things, those forces, were presently being hindered. To read you that passage specifically with reference to the man of sin and the great falling away that would happen before the end of the world, Paul says— and now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work; only he who now letteth, will let until he be taken out of the way. Now that word let and letteth that has reference to hindering. Let in sixteen eleven didn't mean what let can and usually always means today, which would be to permit. He that ledeth had reference to the hindering effect against the mystery of iniquity, in other words, the mystery of iniquity was being withheld, and the mystery of iniquity was being restrained. So if the mystery of iniquity, if the forces of darkness are always attempting this sort of thing, but they're being hindered, what is hindering them? Well, that's a subject of debate in church history. Historically, folks have either said that the he or what that hinders in this passage was the government, or the Holy Spirit, or the church, among many other ideas. And the fact of the matter is, we simply don't know, because Paul didn't tell us what the he or what that hinders was. What we do know is that evil has always been trying to do what it will ultimately do before the end— which is to wage full-out war on the Lord and His people here in the earth. And one day, whatever is restraining that will be removed. But, and here's my point, what you read in Revelation 20 is something that will happen on a smaller scale over and over until the final events of this all-out conflict. So with those three disclaimers being said, let's look at the passage when the thousand years shall be expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. First, at the end of time, Satan will be loosed from his prison. As we sometimes emphasize, there are three historic views about the thousand-year reign which precede the loosing of Satan, the millennial reign, as it's sometimes called. Our position here at Words of Grace as well as among primitive Baptists, is the amillennial position. This is common among many who hold to the doctrines of grace in today's time. And so we believe that the thousand-year reign is symbolic of the church age, but I would also add that the thousand-year reign describes the reign of the martyrs with Christ after their death, because what John sees as he describes this thousand-year reign to us, is the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Christ. He sees souls of those that were beheaded in verse 4, and they lived and reigned with Christ. Well, where are the souls of those who have been beheaded? They're in glory. What do we see throughout the whole book of Revelation? We see disembodied saints worshiping God, praising the Lamb, asking God how long until he avenges them, so, I believe what John sees here is just what he's been describing throughout Revelation. The other two views are postmillennialism and premillennialism. Postmillennialism was popular before World War II, and it was held by many Puritans. This view claims that the world would be evangelized through the preaching of the gospel entirely, ushering in a millennia of world peace and the Lord would return at the end of this era of peace, hence post-after millennia. And then there's the historic premillennialist. Historic premillennialist opponents believe that the Lord would return and rule the world in a Sabbath millennia to be followed by the loosing of Satan. Now, you notice that I didn't say dispensationalism in that, because dispensationalism, which is the predominant view in America today is not a historic view. Dispensationalism is an idea that was popularized by the Darby commentary in the Schofield Bible, but Darby's views were rejected as heresy when he first began propagating them. My particular view of amillennialism, that is to say that this thousand-year reign is the church age, and those disembodied souls who have been martyrs for Christ reign with Him in glory. This is due to many passages that describe the resurrection of the just and the unjust as being at the return of the Lord on the last day. So, you might say that I interpret the less clear by the more clear passages of Scripture. In John 5, we read that the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear the voice of Christ, and they shall come forth, They that have done good under the resurrection of life, they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation, that happens simultaneously. There won't be a secret rapture prior to the resurrection of Jesus, because we which are alive and remain will not precede them which are asleep. The dead in Christ will actually rise first. In 2 Peter 3, we read this final day of the Lord will be one that ushers in the destruction of the universe with fervent heat. So when Jesus comes back, there's not another millennia, but the world will be destroyed in that day. Second Thessalonians 1, Jesus returns in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. First Corinthians 15 describes the coming of the Lord in the twinkle of an eye, and then the dead are raised. And then, as we read in First Thessalonians, we which are alive and remain shall join them in the air. All of these passages indicate that the Lord's return will occur on the last day, not a thousand years before it. But let me just say this. If I'm wrong, I'll be happy and wrong because God's will is best. So whatever happens, we'll all understand it better by and by. So after this thousand-year period, which again I interpret as the church age, Satan is loosed. After the loosing of Satan, loosing from a binding which involved his deception of the nations, verse 3, that he could deceive the nations no more. The church has been a Gentile institution since the first century. Satan lost his influence to the degree that he had it prior to the church age, during the church age, this now coming to an end as he is loosed in the world, and he goes out to deceive the nations of the world. And as he does so, We see here that he goes out into the four quarters of the earth. He goes out into the entire earth, and he deceives nations once again. This seems to correspond with the falling away, the apostasy mentioned in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, but also with the perilous times that would come in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul says, this know also that in the last days shall perilous times come in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. Satan is loosed. And directly before the end, it is a perilous, perilous time. One of the things that Satan does as he is loosed is he rouses up an entity called Gog and Magog. Now, this is interesting because Gog and Magog were actually mentioned in the Old Testament. Gog was a ruler, and Magog was a region of geography, a land, a nation. We find this in Ezekiel chapter 38, which is a prophecy of the nations surrounding Israel after a period of Israel's restoration, coming in to invade her, but being defended by God himself. Many commentators apply the Ezekiel 38 reference to Gog and Magog as being a skirmish and deliverance that took place at some point in the Old Testament. Magog was an actual region of geography and obviously no longer is. Also mentioned in Ezekiel 38 are places like Persia and Gomer and Ethiopia. The days of the Persian Empire are long past, though there is a nation today in the world that might be the modern inheritor to that title. That nation is arguably Iran— But the Persian Empire has been no more since the days of the Greek Empire, which was replaced by the Roman Empire. And while the descendants of Gomer, another character mentioned in Ezekiel 38, are with us, there isn't a people known by that name. This causes some commentators to believe that these are just symbolic, that they have symbolic reference for the nations surrounding Israel, because these nations were the nations that did surround Israel. Of course, if you apply Ezekiel 38 to the past, it's no issue, as these peoples could have existed at least in part in times past. And John Gill in his commentary actually lists several different opinions that people have had about these nations. He cites theologians and historians that believe that it could be various Greeks or the Goths that invaded the Roman Empire, or the Greek king Antiochus or Gyges, a king of Lydia whose country was called Gygea or Gog's land. There are several different opinions that theologians and commentators have had about this particular passage throughout the history of the church. But even if Ezekiel thirty eight had reference to a battle in the Old Testament or the intertestamental period, many of these more epic battles that Israel fought were pointing to an even greater skirmish in the future a greater problem yet to come. Much like the judgments that we've seen throughout human history are pointing to a greater judgment that should come. Much like the deliverances in Israel's history were pointing to a greater deliverance that would come. David and Goliath, yeah, that's about deliverance from the Philistines, but it's also about Christ, because Christ is the son of David, the greater David, the greater king, who went up against a greater Goliath and had the victory. So even if Ezekiel 38 had reference to something a long time ago, it's still relevant because Revelation 20 uses the same terminology to describe something that is yet to come. If it happened in the past, John tells us in Revelation 20 that it's going to happen again. And it would be so similar, this battle and the ultimate victory, that he would use the same terminology to describe this enemy. But it is quite possible that what you read in Ezekiel 38 is referencing the same Gog and Magog, the very same, who will come against the people of God in the last day. So just briefly, who might Gog and Magog be? Magog was a region to the north of Israel. I have seen maps that place it in a part of Russia or the Ukraine or Turkey. Interestingly enough, Every single conquest against Israel came from the north, so it's not surprising at all that this last skirmish would involve a kingdom to the north. I've always wondered if Gog and Magog had reference to perhaps communism as a communist regime once had much control to the north of the geography that we know as Israel, or if it referred to Islamic caliphate, also dominant in the region around and to the north of Israel, or perhaps it has reference to some foe yet to be known, or maybe even a combination of all of the above. Back to Revelation 20. Sometimes a more generic view is taken of Gog and Magog, and preachers believe that these are merely symbolic for the enemies of God. This view should not be mocked. But at the same time, it's important to realize that the overwhelming majority of other prophecies referencing nations were literal references to other countries. This ruler Gog, whoever he may be, is roused by Satan to engage in world war. Notice as many people are battling in this Revelation 20 text as the sand of the sea. This is a common biblical metaphor for a great innumerable number. That's quite alarming. Further in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 9, we read that this fighting compasses the breadth of the earth, indicating that there is fighting everywhere on the globe. So this would describe a world war with an innumerable number of people fighting. As far as the ultimate target, notice that this is twofold. They compass the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Number one, the camp of the saints would have to be, in my mind, the church or Christianized people, just as much as in my mind the holy city, the beloved city, would have to be Jerusalem. John is a Jewish man. He's familiar with the Psalms and the many Old Testament passages that spoke so lovingly of Jerusalem. So Gog and Magog come together, at least in my mind, against the camp of the saints, the church, and the holy city, which would be Jerusalem. What's interesting about this is that you find alliance today between Israel and the West, the West, which are, or at least were, Christianized nations, generally speaking. So is this some sort of coalition against Christianity and what we commonly call the Holy Land? It may very well be, I'll say this, that prophecy is very easy in the 2020 hindsight of history. It's much harder to understand in advance. As I bring my broadcast today to a close, I want to leave you with an exhortation and an encouragement. First of all, as an exhortation, this scripture is written for our understanding. We might not fully understand it just yet, and it might not be fulfilled in our lifetime. But one day it will be fulfilled. One day people will look at world events and see Revelation 20 coming to pass literally before their eyes. We need to be aware of that, and we need to be prepared for that. There's going to be a period of time when people are going to have to hang on for dear life and do what they can to defend their homes until the Lord returns. Now, my encouragement for today, this battle will be won. But it will not be won by us. Who wins this battle? This battle will be won by Jesus himself. God rains down fire from heaven upon them, and God has the victory. Jesus Christ returns, and in flaming fire, takes vengeance on his enemies. He destroys them with the brightness of his coming, and these enemies include Gog and Magog. So, child of God, be prepared. As the old timers would say, keep your powder dry, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, and know that in the end, our Lord will have the victory. Again, I'm Ben Winslick, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write and let me know that you've received today's broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer.
0: If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist church in your community. An online directory is available at marchtosion.com. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. And finally, Words of Grace is a listener-supported program. To contact us, address your correspondence to... Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.